This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. To Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services, and our discussion today is not tied to the investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. For the first part of the, the show today, we're going to be talking with Mark Chandler, who is the Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, a friend of the show, return guest. I always love getting Mark's views on what's going on in the global market. It's really a, a very broad world view. Mark, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Uh, so maybe start off high-level worldview. A lot's going on in the markets. A lot going on in currencies. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of rhetoric with politics, monetary policy. Maybe sort of start with top-down worldview. How are how are you looking at the world today? Yes, yeah, so I guess uh, I begin off by saying that I think that the market, um, or I shouldn't say the market yet, but many people seem to still be exaggerating what's going on with the trade. Uh, I fully acknowledge that the direction might not be so uh, positive, but the system is holding together. And by that, I mean that uh, look at what's, what's, what's happening this week. Uh, so we've got the world stock market. So the, the MSCI developed markets is up for the second week in a row, 2.2%. The emerging markets, the MSCI emerging market index is snapping uh, a couple week, a four week decline. And it's up 1.3% this week. Even China, which saw a seven-week decline, rallied 3% this week. So the stock market's not getting as excited as the newspaper and the op-ed writers are saying this is the end of globalization or the end of the West or the end of something. Yeah. No, you've written a lot on this topic. You have a book, Making Sense of the Dollar, Exposing Dangerous Myths About Trade and Foreign Exchange uh, and the Political Economy of Tomorrow. So you, you focus a lot on these issues. And you know when you think about the trade issues that we're trying to negotiate, it's all very complicated. We don't still know how it's all going to play out, right? Like it's going to take time for us to negotiate to these final agreements and what does it actually look like? Is there you know, do is the current going to be placed? Um, but how do you how do you view? Do you think the do you have a more optimistic view on how it all plays out, and that's why the markets are holding up, or do you think there's still a downside risk factor that it just goes really badly that people are expecting it to go better than it, it's currently uh, being pr- priced in? Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, so far, I think that neither side, neither the U.S. or China, are really hurting each other. Uh, I see the capital economics the research group has predicted that the so far, without counting the auto, what's going to happen with the auto sector, which seems to be more aimed at what the U.S. used to think of as our allies than the China itself. But just based on what so far was happening, including this $200 billion, uh, tariff, on, uh, 10% tariff on $200 billion of goods, might impact the Chinese economy by about half a percent and might impact the U.S. economy by about a quarter of a percent. So even if those numbers are a little bit on the low side, it still seems to be quite modest compared to the kind of damage and kind of hurt we can do to each other. So I think that in the, these kind of things I think of as a escalation ladder, and we're still at the very early rungs so far. And what that means, I think, is that um, I, I, it's funny. And your prelude to the show, you're saying how you just hosted a emerging market panel. I did too. Yeah. And I think one of your colleagues was on there. That's great. And uh, one of the uh, 
one of the things that came up was there was some some of the panel, not all of them, but some of them wanted to th- thought that maybe the emerging markets had value now. Maybe the big sell-off in risk assets created some value opportunities. And so I think that uh, I, I, my, my sense is that uh, this is what's happening right now: is people think that things could get things may get worse, but even if they get a bit worse, uh, that it's going to hold together. Yeah, and and when you think about the the rhetoric and just sort of the politics, if you try to take you know, like are you Republican Democrat out of it and and try to keep shy from that view, but you know when we've talked about like it, I think in some ways Trump has this argument on reciprocality and say hey we already have very low trade tariffs and all the people say well now you're instituting these other retaliatory uh, metrics in a way don't we have the lowest rates and, and his standing that we we just want you to get to reciprocal. We want you to be at the same rate as us. That seems like a very strong argument to me. I found, it sounds really good on the face of it. But yeah. here's what happened. It seemed, in my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that when countries join the WTO, they agree on a schedule of tariffs. And the IMF and the WTO, they've got these schedules that would give you like the average effective tariff. So what are the goods that are really being traded? What's the tariff on those? And, like, weight them accordingly. And these kind of things don't show to be much a big outlier between the U.S., Europe, and Canada. We're talking about the biggest barriers to trade aren't tariffs. We're talking about, I think, I want to say that something like on a trade-weighted, uh, like a actual trade-weighted tariff basis, it's something like 1.6% in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. And so, yes, we can talk about different goods. Like, so, for example, uh, we, have, we in the U.S. have very low tariff on autos, but a very high tariff on SUVs. We also protect our dairy market. We protect our sugar market. And so it, it matters, like, how, like, reciprocity yeah. in general. But it can't be – it might not be on every individual product. Right. So when 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 you so when you, the trade is one of the big topics of conversation. The other that's going on this year has been just the rising rates from the cent, from the feds for the, the balance sheet normalization. You've got Europe, Japan still doing, you know, QE. Although ECB is is winding down potentially. Uh, how do you think about this monetary policy divergence theme? Uh, that's one of the things we've talked with you about in the past. Like, what's your, what's your view on just global central bank policy? What that means for interest rates for currencies? Yeah, so I'm still in the big camp of this divergence, and I still think divergence has a ways to go. Uh, so, uh, and so for me, I'd say there's three big forces driving the markets right now. One of them will be this monetary policy divergence. Uh, the second one is the policy mix in the U.S. And that's the uh, that's, that's just talk about fiscal policy too. This tighter monetary policy, looser fiscal policy, tends to be the like like steroids for a currency. This is what the U.S. had when Reagan Volcker. This is what Germany had when the Berlin Wall fell, and the the West like had a leverage buyout for the East. This is a very explosive policy mix for the dollar, and it has all kinds of uh, effects of as far as sucking capital into the U.S. And then the third issue I thought was a driver is really immigration. And by immigration, I've been really thinking about what's going on in Europe, but I also think it's what's partly behind, or at least it's not behind fully the uh, like where a lot of the energy comes from for Brexit, and that is a Want to get control of the border, thinking that they want to get control of the borders from the EU, which is thought to be forcing them to have a lot of immigrants. Yeah. So now, last year, I, I would say we, we were starting to get towards this policy mix. Maybe the full fiscal thrust wasn't there, but we had. I would have. I would agree with you in that that sort of combination, and we got a very weak dollar environment. Some of that's coming back now. Certainly, the second quarter was a very strong for the dollar. Um, and do you think that was it? Just 
when I look at it from last year, which is politics going much better than expected in the Eurozone and that being one of the major factors. Any other explanations you have on last year and what could be the further catalyst this year for, for continuation of that theme? Well, I, th- I think you're right. That for me, that last year, the uh, going in, going in coming out of Brexit in, uh, in June of 2016, U.S. election uh, in 2016, and then people were afraid of all these European elections. And it became clear they weren't going to go this way or that way, I should say. The... Uh, uh, I'd say people were underweight the European assets and had to had to jump back in, but that it was it seemed to me like a largely a one-off portfolio adjustment, and I think that uh, what, what I worry about is that uh, ECB has already told us they're not going to raise interest rates for a full year. By the time they raise interest rates, what by the time they try to raise interest rates, what if the economy has lost some of its momentum? And you know that's what's happened this week for the first time in this cycle is that so. Uh, uh, I, I, I talked to a lot of our clients, and a lot of people were interested in when will the Fed funds rate, what level will it peak at? And now I'm beginning to hear more talk, more thinking about when will the first cut come. And so this this week, for the first time, the December 20, 2020 Eurodollar futures contract, that implied yield, fell below the end of 2019 futures contract. Mm-hmm. First time the market's beginning to price in something like the end of the Fed cycle, beginning of the cut. Is that uh, is that consistent with your view? Do you think it's it's a 2020 situation where we have to start cutting rates? Yeah, I'm thinking that we're really still late cycle, uh, and that there's this fiscal stimulus is giving us this last like push, and that the uh, things like those late cycle things, things that uh, your listeners could track themselves as well, is like a 12 month moving average of non farm payrolls. This tends to peak in the middle of a cycle. It peaked in 2015. I find that the uh, auto si- autos are also cyclical. Uh, 12-month moving average of auto sales uh, peaked in 2016. I'm also seeing like credit card delinquency rates beginning to rise, also late cycle, uh, typically before the U.S. has a downturn. Not only does the yield curve flatten or get inverted, but also we get a spike in oil prices. So, so I'm seeing like the, so the constellation, if you will, are beginning to align. But not for right away, because I do, I do agree that this fiscal stimulus is large, and we still have, uh, say, some in the system to work its way through. So, when you, when you think about how you, how that ties into these different currency views, I mean, does it sound like you're still in that pro dollar camp, given that that combination that's still there, or and and this divergence theme, or do you have a more mixed view because of that? Hey, now we're going to start focusing on when we start cutting rates. Like, what's how do you put that together? Yeah, so so yeah, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of investors. And I know at times always the challenge is keeping the different time frames. Sometimes you you think you're losing on what should be a short-term trade, it becomes a longer-term investment. And so uh, so I, I try to keep the time frames different. So in the in the short run, I think that uh, last couple of weeks we've had a pullback in the dollar, and that pullback in the dollar I think has run its course. And now I think we we're beginning the next leg up to the dollar. Uh, I think that uh, before this is over, I still think we're going to get closer to parity on the euro. And I think that uh, we'll still see uh, sterling come under more pressure. In this kind of mix, though, I find that the Canadian dollar typically does better on the crosses in a strong U.S. dollar environment. And, and say, starting as of, say, the second half of this year, the Bank of Canada might be the only major central bank that can keep up with the Fed in tightening. If the Fed goes twice, here in the second half, like at least the latest dot plots suggest, uh, Bank of Canada seems they can go one more time after raising rates this past week. 
and part of that they've been sort of boosted by a little bit of the oil recently. Any other any other views of how that interacts with with view on oil? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I'm uh, it's, it's it's ironic with the oil though. I think is that uh, you know the problems some of the problems with supply coming from Libya, uh, coming from anticipation of Iran, uh, is partly uh, fostered by the U.S. And we've got uh, gasoline prices now at four year highs. So it, for me, this is another late cycle development. But what I find what I find interesting too, though, is that the U.S. Uh, could be next year the could be the biggest energy producer, and the uh, and on the other hand, what what I'm going to be fascinated by starting really September, is I believe that is when the you know China launched that uh, RMB based uh, oil futures contract earlier this year, and I believe in September they'll begin having physical delivery, and so I think this is going to be a it's going to be a boost not so much for the RMB being a uh, reserve currency or anything like that. I'm thinking much more along the lines of another vehicle or a channel in which Iran could get oil out uh, despite a U.S. embargo. Hmm. So bringing up China, I mean, we talked a little bit on, on the trade issues for China. And, you know, we, we, start, we started off talking a little bit about, you know, the sort of weakness in EM currencies generally this year. Any view on how on, on China's outlook towards uh, the, the implications for the rest of emerging markets and, and how, you, how you view China there? Yeah, I think that you know what a lot of people I think are uh, seeing is like a, a wave of a, just a rising protectionism, and that that is definitely what's getting the headlines. But on the other hand, what's going to happen is I think that these tariffs are going to change trade patterns. So, give you an example. Even though the U, China and the U.S. are raising tariffs against each other, China is cutting its tariffs against some other Asian countries, uh, so they they can begin supplying some of the goods that maybe the U.S. has been providing. Uh, there's a great story on uh, Bloomberg about how uh, uh, now that U.S. soybeans may be too expensive for the Chinese, uh, that the uh, Brazilians are happy to take our soy and use that for their own domestic purposes and then export their good soy. And so uh, uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm thinking that the Chinese economy is, going to, is slowing down. and We're going to see some numbers next week that are going to show a little bit further of a slowdown from the Chinese economy. They're wrestling, though, with and they're trying to like change the car tire while the car is still going, trying to encourage a deleveraging in this kind of environment while the economy is slowing down. So I think China does have some serious challenges. But I, I sort of worry that even if China were to, were to do what you were suggesting before, to adopt the same level of tariffs the U.S. did, if they were to do that overnight, I'm afraid that, one, it would not be good enough for the U.S., and secondly, it wouldn't really solve our problems. The problem is that China is not forcing the U.S. to have a trade deficit. We're having a trade deficit. We run a chronic current account deficit because we, we live beyond our means as a country. We, don't, we, we give ourselves a basket of goods that we don't tax ourselves for, and we end up having to borrow that money. And so I think that even if these I – I mean, the U.S. right now has a sort of victim attitude. Everybody's picking on us. But I wonder if, if, uh, if everybody did what we want them to do, whether we would still have our own problems. Yeah, no, and I, I I get that point. I, we had a an interesting somebody running for um, uh, for for this for I want to say for a house seat uh, for a house and seat in Congress from the fourth district here in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, and he was commenting on the China situation on on aluminum and the aluminum tariffs and saying you know the reason why it looks like China's 
well, why, why he, in his view, you know, they're supporting the market. He's just, they're giving free energy essentially to these aluminum producers. That's like the biggest cost of production in a lot of the aluminums. So there's some of this backstory things that we don't always see the full picture on, if that's a true statement, that, you know, they're supporting aluminum with that, that, that kind of support. Yeah, no, I think that's really the problem is that the biggest barriers, that's, and that's, I think, what's it brought out too, is a lot of things that the U.S. complains about are not necessarily illegal under the WTO. And that's the challenge is that a lot of the, some of these practices, uh, unfair subsidies, uh, sometimes might not be illegal, but it's still unfair. And I think that's the, so, so I, I kind of think that under a different uh, regime, that uh, I think that you'd find that not only Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. could be united behind it, but many countries in the world would be united behind this idea that China has taken unfair advantage of the system. So it reminds me of a story, you know, an article in the Foreign Affairs a couple months ago by Graham Allison, who's a, uh, I think he's at the Kennedy School of Government. We've had him uh, on the show about the yep. uh, Thucydides trap and uh, the rise of China versus the U.S. and how that's all yeah, going to play exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's just an interesting uh, perspective that. Uh, let's just take a step back from the uh, the nuances and take a look at like the big picture what's happening. Yeah, we have about two minutes left uh, for this segment here, Mark. Any you know we any parts of emerging markets you think uh, people should be paying attention to? You think that sort of sold off with all of this discussion that might be opportunities that that you'd be be looking at? Uh, I think it's too early for Turkey. I'm afraid that uh, on this emerging market panel, I think that there was one agreement among, I mean, what are the chances of, of uh, four or five economists all agreeing, but they all agreed they didn't like Turkey. Uh, I, I, I like the Brazil story, but I think we have to get through the election. Uh, in general, though, I think that uh, emerging markets is an asset class that is going to suffer a while longer, even if there's value there. I think they've got to get the deeper value. Uh, but I think that that's the way the measure, I think, is not so much if an emerging market can be immune to these kinds of cyclical pressures, but how fast it can bounce back. And uh, I'm, I'm actually, it might be an outlier now, but I'm, I'm a bit optimistic on Mexico. Uh, I think that the, uh, the idea that AMLO is a closet socialist, I don't think does, does him justice. Any, any views on what, what, uh, what the catalyst there is? Do people just come in and say, view that they're not going to do anything that, that negative for the economy? Well, I think that because, yeah, yeah that'd be my sense is that uh, the, the w- excluding for the energy sector, I think we'll see that most of his uh, program will be acceptable by international investors. What he's going to do with the energy is a different story if he, if he tries to unwind some of the, the reforms. Very good. Uh, Mark Chandler, a BBH currency strategist, uh, always a pleasure catching up with, with what you've been doing, your views on the markets. Thanks for, uh, for joining us on the call today. Thank you very much. Good luck to everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.